This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to The Real Reel, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. What do I want to learn in this part of my career? What is the skill set that I want to have, the expertise I want to be known for? What types of projects do I want to be leading? What stages do I want to be standing on? What books am I writing? And when you give that roadmap to yourself, it kind of becomes this list. Once you've checked off most of those, then you can wake up and be like, all right, now it might be time to set my sights on my next challenge. So being very purposeful in what I want to learn. That also helps you raise your hand for the right projects or do something outside your comfort zone because you know that's qualifying you for your future roles that you want to have. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Real podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. I am so refreshed. It is the new year and this year doesn't really feel like it began already. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm recording this on the first week of January and for some reason I don't I don't feel a shift. You know, usually when the new year starts, I feel kind of like a shift in the air. I feel so excited to get onto my New Year's resolutions and this year it just kind of feels like the same thing. Um doesn't doesn't feel like 2022. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but for me, I'm like still stuck in 2021. Honestly, I think ever since 2020, the years have just been kind of blending together and there hasn't been that much shift, but nevertheless, I still am very excited. And this episode did put me more in that new year mood. So I'm actually going to be re-listening to this. I usually don't listen to my own podcast, but this one was one of my absolute favorites because Anne, who is the guest, spoiler alert, is just so incredible and it just made me so excited for the new year. It made me just want to refresh on like my career New Year's resolutions and my career goals and kind of look back on what I'm doing and I don't know. It just made me very excited. So I know that you guys are going to be excited. If any of you are looking to, you know, work in the corporate world, start your own business, become a CEO, become a founder, you need to listen to this. It's just a huge rush of motivation and also a lot of tangible tips too. So I'm very excited for this, especially as we begin to launch Rella, which if you didn't know, we're kind of in in major crunch time, which is really hard to get into after the holidays. But this week, what I've been focusing on is launch. We are launching in two weeks. So January 18th, mark your calendars. You actually don't even need to mark your calendars. All you need to do is go to the app store and pre-order Rella type in Rella and it should come up and you can pre-order it and it'll automatically be downloaded. So you don't even need to remember on January 18th. It's so surreal seeing an app that I made on the app store. Like, I'm just like, what? Like that's, that's mine. And what's even more surreal is seeing you use it and then seeing myself use it. Like I have been using it to plan out my content, to plan out my social media, to plan out my Instagram, make sure it looks aesthetic. But then on top of that, make sure all my YouTube videos are going up. I've just been planning, 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 and it is freaking weird. It's so weird doing it. So definitely download Rella. That's what we've been working on this week. It's been like the biggest part of my week. And I feel like maybe that's why the, the days have been jumbled together because like all I've been working on is Rella. But yeah, that is that is mainly what I've been doing. But it's just been so hard having to do that while I am, you know, trying to also like get myself back into the working mode um, after being home for a few weeks or for a few days and then coming back here and having New Year's here and just like not working. It's been really hard to get back into the work mode. So if any of you feel that way, just know that it's very normal. I, I feel like it's kind of hard to expect people to just automatically come back to work and be just as motivated as they were before when we just had Christmas and New Year's and a long break. And I mean, even from Thanksgiving, I'm still recovering from that. So you know what? It's normal. And I feel like I always talk about productivity and I'm always posting about productivity, but here's the real inside scoop. It's freaking hard to get back into the swing of things and that's okay. And that's normal. And we should not be expected to be go, go, go. And always on 24 seven. And it's not a switch. You know, I, I view it as like a dimmer 
rather than a light switch. So it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it takes some time to light up again. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're a little more dim and then sometimes you're a little bit more bright. And that's the attitude that we're going into 2022 with. It's not a light switch. It's a dimmer. And that's what I'm going to start saying from now on. <laughs> but anyways, I am very, very excited for Anne. I am so excited to have her on the podcast. And this could not be a better guest to start off the new year with. We're starting it off with a bang. I am just over the moon to share this interview with you because I know that you're going to walk away feeling empowered, confident, and energized because that is how I felt when I was speaking to her. She truly is someone I personally look up to, not only because of her enormous list of accomplishments, I mean, seriously, go check out her LinkedIn, but <laughs> it's going to blow your mind, but also her humbleness, her drive, and her confidence. We really connected over the fact that neither of us have like an innate talent that we could hone in on and we had to really fight to accomplish our goals, even if that meant studying an extra three hours to ace a test. I felt very seen and I know a lot of you are going to feel seen because it's just so unrealistic to expect everyone to have this like talent and this like superpower, this like skill that they have. And that's like their thing. And they're going to go take over the world with that one thing. Like that's usually doesn't happen for, for majority of us. We have to work really, really hard to achieve results that might come naturally to others. So we talked about that. I felt incredibly seen and understood speaking with her. And I'm not going to lie. I was a bit nervous to talk to her. This was a very nerve wracking episode because Anne has worked with some of the most successful entrepreneurs and CEOs on the planet. And I felt major imposter syndrome before I started recording. And then the second I started recording, I just felt more at ease. But I'm talking like the CEOs she's worked with and not just like worked with like, okay, yeah, every now and then like right hand woman to Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt. Jeff Bezos, you know, Amazon, and then Eric Schmidt, um, Google. Yeah, those people. And we get into how she found herself sitting beside Jeff Bezos in 2002 before Amazon was even profitable and how she climbed her way to becoming chief of staff at Google. Anne is the definition of a go-getter and she recently launched her book called Bet on Yourself. I downloaded it on my Kindle. I'm going to share my thoughts once I finish it. So definitely follow me on Instagram. And you are going to be rushing to buy this book. Like I'm, I literally bought it. Like the second I found out I was interviewing her, sold, bought it, downloaded it to my Kindle. Um, and yes, I did download it off of Amazon, which kind of is like a full circle moment for her. And I was just very honored to hear Anne's story and to hear the lessons that she's learned along the way. And it led her to start her very own company. So you're going to hear all about that. On today's episode, we dive into character traits that differentiate a great CEO from just a good one. I was taking notes. <laughs> how to discover what you want in the next stage of your career, the importance of an individual mission statement, and how to successfully network and finally get a response to those cold emails. I am very, very honored that Anne was able to speak to me on my podcast. I know you're going to feel energetic. I know you're going to feel empowered. And if this is an episode that you enjoyed and that you resonated with, please screenshot this, post it on your story and tag us. That is how people discover my podcast along with reviews, which you can now leave reviews on Spotify as well, which makes me happy because I'm exclusively a Spotify listener. I don't know about you, but I don't use Apple Podcasts anymore. I use Spotify because I want to see at the end of the year my Spotify wrapped and I want to know who the top podcasts were that I listened to. So once Spotify wrapped came around in like 2020 when I started seeing everyone posting it, I immediately stopped using Apple Podcasts and 2021 was the year I only listened to Spotify. So now that they have reviews, I'm very excited. So be sure to screenshot this, post it on your story, tag me, tag Anne share your favorite quotes, your favorite lessons, share this with a friend who also kind of needs some encouragement and motivation in the new year. I'm sharing it with so many people in my life and also leave a review and give us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And now let's get into the podcast with Anne. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz and take it from me. I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Eras tour for like the third time, you know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? 
It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 400 50 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration, and according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Fun to be here with you, Natalie. This will be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I also am so impressed by just like everything that you're doing. So I'm really excited just to talk to you and kind of dive deeper into everything. But before we get started, I always start with setting the record straight. So this is some stereotypes, some assumptions, and then you'll let me know if they're true or false. Okay. So the first one is in order to be successful, you need to network. Yes. Yeah. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's something that a lot of people miss sometimes it's either like you do it or you don't like it's like you're really good at it or you neglect it completely yeah I think networking isn't like that kind of scary stuff that we've seen where you're like awkwardly standing around cocktail tables wearing name tags and it's just like an event where that's what you're doing I think actual networking that's effective is much more in that day-to-day like the everyday the way you show up the energy you're putting out there the reputation you're building for yourself and how proactive you are in getting outside your comfort zone and exposing yourself to leaders that you want to become like so that for me is the actual networking that makes the difference not those forced kind of events that used to exist <laughs> yeah and now I feel like those aren't even a thing no. because of COVID exactly so it's like you kind of have to network on your own. And I feel like, you know, the internet is such a useful tool. Um, friends of friends, you know, things like that, like tapping into your university, if you went to one, like, I think all of that is such a better way than those like awkward networking events. Couldn't agree more. I think I fully am on on board with the more modern approach, more natural. It's just part of being who you are and extending your circle and asking for some introductions or, you know, setting yourself up for new experiences where you're exposed to new circles of people. I think that's a lot more fun than the old way. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then the next one is in order to be successful, you have to take risks. Oh, definitely. (laughs) I do think that uh, true success never exists within your current comfort zone. 
So, and this doesn't have to be the big, scary, like moonshot Silicon Valley definition of risk-taking, right? This can be measured. It can be just one step outside your comfort zone, or it can be a calculated risk where you're pretty sure it's going to work out. But even if it doesn't, you're going to learn something new and up-level your skills. I think that kind of risk-taking always leads to advancement and advancement and learning definitely leads to success ultimately. Yeah, I love that. It really doesn't happen in your comfort zone. No. You have to go out of it to just be successful and also to, I feel like, have confidence in yourself to be able to even do that next thing or to like take that leap. Yeah. It's a lot of like confidence that you need to have too. It is. But you know, that wasn't my nature. I'm really glad that I worked in Silicon Valley and in tech because it nurtured that instinct out of me. So if some of your listeners are like, oh gosh, I'm not that brave risk-taking person. Neither was I. And if I could do it, so can you for sure. It's just by starting you know, one step at a time and getting yourself used to, okay, that wasn't so bad, or at least I learned this. And you build your confidence uh, step-by-step as you go. It doesn't have to be this one big, bold, crazy move that you're making. Uh, It's very much about kind of the the way you show up for yourself every day. Yeah. I love that. It's more realistic. I feel like Like it's not that scary. Oh my God, I need to take this big (laughs) risk. And then I might fail. You know, it's like, you can just show up for yourself little by little. Yeah, exactly. And then the next one is that your career and your work should not define you. Ooh, this is a hard one for me. So I would agree with that. It it shouldn't define you because if things outside of your control happen, you don't want to lose your whole identity. However, I want to acknowledge that my career and my work has very much been a core part of how I think about myself and how I show up in the world. So I think it's, it's okay if it does, uh, formulate a big part of your self-identity as long as you're really focused on the parts that are firmly within your control, that are pandemic proof and future proof. And I think a lot of our conversation today is inevitably, I'm sure, going to hit on a lot of these things that you can do even when options appear limited. But if your identity is based on what other people think of you or uh, the universe kind of dropping your next like dream role into your lap, that's a dangerous place to be. And that's when people are primed for burnout or disappointment. But if you are being really proactive and creating the roadmap for yourself that you want, I think it's okay for that to be a big part of how you think about yourself and how you show up in the world. But it's really about that intention and the, the putting yourself on the purposeful path that you want to be on. Yeah, that's also been a struggle for me. So I've been on social mm-hmm. media since I was 15. So for 10 years now, I've been on social and like doing it kind of as a, a full-time career for the past two and a half years already. I've started my mm-hmm. own business. I'm starting a startup right now. And that has been the biggest like defining thing in my life. It's like, that's who I am. Like I am the person on social. I'm the person that started Rella. I'm the person that started this business, you know? And like, I feel like so many of my goals and so many times when I'm trying to describe myself, like that's how I describe myself, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But I've realized I'm like, wait, I want to have more like personal goals. I want to not have this be like my entire identity and because I feel like for so long, that's what it's been because it's also like a unique yeah. part of myself. And like, but I'm, I'm trying to kind of make sure that I have other things that it's not just that, because like you said, if something does go wrong, or if, if your worth is in like what other people view your success as, you know, that's, that's not good. That's a dangerous path. Oh, Natalie, you're like, 20 years ahead of me on this growth curve. I'm so glad that you're that you're stepping away from that and thinking like, okay, there's more to me than just this. You're your um what you offer into the world in terms of your personality, what you offer your community, your family, those those things are the other part of you. And that was something that I really woke up to just four years ago. In fact, this week is four year anniversary of me moving from Silicon Valley to Spain. And Spain has a very different culture around work. They work insanely hard. There's incredible talent here. There's lots of, I found a great entrepreneurial community here, but when they leave work, at first it honestly offended me that not a single Spaniard has ever asked me like, what do you do or your experience? And that was so strange for me as an American. I thought they, they don't care about me. They don't like me. Well, how am I not fitting in here? And that's just because they're only going to ask you about your passions, your hobbies, your loves, you know, your community, your family. And I, 
honestly, when I first moved here, did not have very many answers for those questions. And so I'm glad that I've, this culture has woken up that other side to me to think about how can I enrich my experience and have some things to share beyond just my work day. So it's, it's been a good positive reinforcement for me to branch out from that and prioritize other things that maybe my Silicon Valley community didn't necessarily necessarily encourage me to invest in. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know what my answers would be for those questions either. Cause here it is what, what is asked. It's like, oh, so what do you do? So where do you work? Mm-hmm. Like that's exactly it. yeah. it's question number two. Your name and what do you do? That's it. And here, four years in, literally never happened. Everyone asked me that. That's awesome. But I want to know a little bit more about your background. So when you were growing up, what were your aspirations? Were you wanting to kind of go on the same path that you are now? Or like, what was your goal when you were younger? This amazing journey that I've been on in no way resembles plan A, that's for sure. And I'm kind of glad for that. So I've always aimed much higher than my natural abilities. I was just born that way. When I was tiny, my my goals was to be like a prima ballerina or an Olympian. I've always been obsessed with like champions, people who are the best in the world at what they do from a very young age. Um, then in school, like when I was in junior high and high school, I really thought that my career would be in academics. I loved reading. I loved teaching. I loved speaking. And so I thought that that would be my path. First, I was in a military family. So my dad was a fighter pilot. I was born on Air Force Base in Florida, my next two sisters on a base in Alaska. And then when he left the military, we settled in Seattle. So that's where I grew up. My parents settled in Redmond, not expecting that that choice would change the course of my life because right around me, literally less than five minute drive from our front door was Microsoft headquarters where the personal computing revolution was happening all around us. And so my very first job at 16 years old was at a startup before that term had even been coined. It was a five person startup uh, founded by two brothers who had just graduated from Harvard Business School. And I really learned about tech by wearing all the hats and watching these brothers invent this company from the ground up. I had no idea at the time that that was preparing me for my very first job after university. Uh, When I graduated from undergrad, I started working directly for Jeff Bezos, like literally sitting in the desk physically closest to his in the entire company in 2002. It was a super crazy time, but I'm really glad that the universe kind of put me onto that path because um, we had just had the original dot-com bust like a year or so before I graduated from undergrad. And had that not happened, I probably would have pursued that original dream much earlier. And I would have missed out on this incredibly ridiculous, exciting, like greatest privilege of my life adventure that my career has been ever since that day. Yeah, that's incredible. And also, I mean, did your parents encourage that type of confidence? Like, were they like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can be the best at whatever it is. Or were they kind of reeling you back in? Yes and no. So their nature is quite timid because I'm first generation non-farmer in the history of my family. So my parents both grew up on potato farms in Idaho. That's how they met. Their families were in the same community. And um, my dad was the original dreamer to break away from that. Now, when you're a farmer, you're one bad season away from like being destitute. So they're very careful. They're saving their money. They're saving their resources. They're ready for like a bad season or a bad year when you don't have any income or food on the table. So that is in my DNA. I'm also Scandinavian. They tend to be a little bit more measured and and risk averse, but my dad broke the mold. So while that's probably our nature, my dad nurtured that also. He left this family farm decided he was going to have a big dream, which to, which was to not only become a pilot, but to become the elite fighter pilots in the U.S. Air Force. And he accomplished that dream. So in my earliest childhood memories, it was my dad doing things that no one around him had ever done before. He dreamed of being this fighter pilot when he was waking up at 5 a.m. milking the family's dairy cows. So he's a bold risk taker in that. So I watched him do that. And then also when I was about eight years old, that's when he decided to retire and he went to law school. And he went from being this elite fighter pilot to going to law school and working at night as a janitor to put food on the table and to help us get through this three years of education. So I saw him go from literally when he walked in a room, people would salute him to going to working nights and studying full time to create a new life and new opportunities for our family. So there's these two sides to the same coin in my family influence of being very measured, being very like being willing to outwork and out care everyone around you. And that is what qualifies you to 
accomplish your crazy, crazy dreams. So it's my nature nurture um, kind of in conflict, but I think it's become this beautiful like formula for reaching heights that maybe scare you a little bit when you set out those goals originally. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that's also such a cool way to grow up in the sense that you see your parent do one thing that's like amazing, the top of what they do, but then they also, you know, are not like, oh, being a janitor is beneath me, you know, like they do what they have to do. And I think that that's really inspiring and probably shaped your life and kind of what you grew up to do as well. And I know that you said that you worked at a startup when you were 16. What were you doing at 16? Because I feel like, you know, 16, it's like really young. Like, were you helping them out or were you like one of the first hires? Like, what was your role in that? I was hired to be a receptionist. So I actually got this job a little bit under false pretenses. So one of my best friends through junior high and high school, we uh, sang in choirs together. And she, her family was relocating from Seattle to North Carolina. She had had this job before me. And she is a very accomplished concert pianist. And I can read music, but at that point, I could just play it with one finger. This startup was called Musicware, where um, they had developed this software to transcribe original music compositions. So you would plug your electronic keyboard into your computer and this program would transcribe what you were playing. And then the other product that they developed was piano lessons that would then give you real-time feedback. If you had made a mistake, it would give you exercises to improve those skills. It was pretty sophisticated for 1995. That was really amazing. But so when I, I thought I was being hired just to be the receptionist, like welcome in people when it came for meetings or when they were hosting, you know, a big client meeting or something. But I didn't know that a big part of the job was also beta testing the software. And my friend, Melissa, who um, had them hire me for the job, did not tell them about the discrepancies in our <laughs> piano skills. <laughs> so I had to learn really, really fast. So I was the receptionist. I was making photocopies, assembling sales packets. I was doing forecasting reports of gathering, like how much literally like our, what's now called our run rate, which is how much money do you need to have every month to keep the lights on? And then how much can you forecast of like, okay, if we close this next big client account, or if we get this next partnership deal, that will give us additional runway. So it was really the best business school I could get watching this five person company do it. Cause there was no one to train me. There was, there was no one for me to shadow or be like, what should I be doing right now? I just had to pick up my eyes And like you said, 16 is really young to be that proactive. I just had to learn really, really fast. I also made a bunch of mistakes, which I also talk about in the book in that first job. (laughs) I learned a lot of things the hard way, um, but it was a great education. Yeah, I feel like experience is the best way to learn. So definitely, you you were young enough that like those mistakes were totally fine to make. So yeah, it was fine. And you got a job with Jeff Bezos after college. You know, you were his kind of right-hand woman. Mm -hmm. How did you land that job? Was it, did you know him beforehand? Did you network? Like, what was that process like? It was a gift from the universe. There's like, I've worked really, really hard in my career, but there's absolutely some elements of luck. So a couple stars aligned for me in getting that first job. When I was um, studying undergrad, I went to University of Washington in Seattle and I was studying international studies. So nothing tech related at all. (laughs) And um, I worked two student jobs while I was studying full time. One was at the library restocking books. And the other one was at the European Union Center where we were hosting foreign professors because in 2002, the year I graduated from undergrad, they were launching the Euro. So they were educating um, Americans about this new currency and about what what that was going to do to international business. And so we got to host really amazing people. It looked good on my resume, even though I got paid like, I don't know, pennies an hour and shared an office with like six other people. I learned so much about thinking globally and thinking about the ripple effect and, and how something happening on the other side of the planet could affect American businesses. So the director of that program asked me what I was doing after graduation. And I told him I had no idea because again, the dot-com crash had just happened and Seattle was a very tech-heavy city. So trillions of dollars of investments had disappeared overnight. And so had many of the job opportunities for recent grads. So I'd sent out 50, maybe a hundred resumes and didn't even get like a a phone call back, even for a free internship. There was just nothing. So he said, well, have you thought of applying at Amazon? And I had not because I wasn't planning on working in tech, Um, but his wife worked in recruiting there. And that is literally the only reason I submitted my resume was that little comment he made to me after work one day. So the interview process actually took more than nine months, but it did end up in Jeff Bezos personally hiring me to sit right next to him. (laughs) 
That's insane. I mean, and in 2002, was Amazon as big, like a big no. deal? I feel like it wasn't as, I mean, it's definitely not as big as it is today, but was it known? It was known definitely in Seattle. It was really well known. I, admittedly, I didn't yet have an Amazon account. I had never ordered something on Amazon. And before all the listeners judge, like most people hadn't, it was very, very new. And so, but Jeff was a bit of a celebrity already. He had been Time Magazine's person of the year in 1999. So he was definitely known in the space. He was one of the few survivors of the dot-com bust. But when I joined in 2002, the company was not yet profitable, if you can imagine. <laughs> like They had had a single profitable quarter, but not yet a consistently profitable year. And so it was a highly competitive space. All of the investors were very anxious to get a return because they'd lost everything else in the dot-com crash. And uh, it was a crazy, crazy part of Amazon's growth curve. The year I joined, they doubled in the number of employees. I joined when we, the entire company was in a single 15-story building. Now they have 1.1 million employees today. <laughs> but back then I knew everyone's names um, and we were just growing really fast. So it was a, a contentious, like high stress, high stakes environment that um, was one of the greatest privileges of my life to see is like, how did Jeff manage that? How did he set expectations? How did he create uh, the systems for scale and growth that made Amazon what it is today? Yeah, I mean, the fact that you got to learn directly from him yeah. must have been such an amazing learning experience. But what prepared you for that role? Like, were you ready to work in tech? Were you ready to work alongside one of the most successful CEOs? Like, what and what did you do? You know, like, what was kind mm -hmm. of your role and what helped you prepare for that? And also not be scared. Like, if I was not <laughs> a tech background and I all of a sudden got this role at this like fast growing and like, very mm -hmm. high pressure company, I would be terrified. So kind of what helped you with that role? Honestly, I think my naivete helped me a lot in the beginning in the interview process. Had I fully understood what my job would entail, I would have been appropriately terrified. But because I didn't fully understand what I was going to be stepping into, I came with a lot of confidence. Like I'm a smart person. I work really, really hard. I learn fast and I'm a bit of a chameleon. I can deal with difficult personalities really easily and get them to warm up to me pretty quickly. So I was confident that I could figure it out. It wasn't until about a month or so into getting that job that I became appropriately terrified and realized, oh my gosh, I don't have any of the core skills to do this job. So I'd been hired to uh, join an existing support team for Jeff. He had three people in his C-suite. So he had his office and the rest of us were kind of in this big um, executive suite. My manager was John Connors, who still is chief of staff for Jeff Bezos today, 19 years later. And uh, John taught me the ropes. So he was my mentor. He was the one I could go to because tech has this, it has its own language. You go in there and you're literally like, what? You don't understand what or who or what they're talking about. There's lots of acronyms and very specific terminology. And there's all these big players that weren't yet kind of global names. And so I had this notebook on my desk that first year where I just kept track of everything I did not understand, what that term meant, who this person was, what we were trying to launch. And so I would go to John with these little sanity checks while I was learning kind of the ropes of technology. But I think the most important part in this crazy environment I found myself in was because it was the birth of the internet and we were inventing e-commerce, I saw around me, even though I was the junior most person in the entire company, probably that whole first year, I watched these senior vice presidents who were hired to expand into Japan or launch, you know, beyond books, we were going to jewelry or sportswear and music. I watched these senior vice presidents doing things they had no idea how to do because no one had ever done it before. So it gave me permission to just ask smart questions, gather data, make some mistakes, learn really fast and try again. Because even at the most sophisticated expert level of the company, they were doing that too. Had I joined the company a couple of years later, I think I probably wouldn't have been as brave as I ended up being just because I saw that same behavior being modeled at the very, very top. And it was a culture that not only allowed, but demanded for that kind of learning curve. And so I was in good company. That really helped. <laughs> yeah. You seem like a very confident person and you like, especially back then, you also seemed very confident, even though you might not have had all of the experience. How do you develop that confidence? Because I think, yes, some people are born with confidence, but I think a lot of it is practice too. And I think that confidence is what lands people jobs. It's what grants opportunities. It's what helps people take mm. those leaps. So 
what are some tips that have made you become more of a confident person? If you had asked me as a teenager, are you a confident person? I would have said no. I, I think that would be a misjudgment on my part, but that would have been my answer because I mistook my tim- timidity um, to be not confident, but that wasn't that those two things aren't necessarily the same. I'm not timid now because now I'm definitely in my, my area of expertise. I have a lot of experience behind me, which gives you confidence in those moments of, I don't like to call it imposter syndrome. I call it imposter moments because it's not a permanent diagnosis. You can have this like, Oh, how'd I get at this table? Or how, why on earth did he hire me for this job? But I think it's honestly those struggles that I had as a teenager of, of, lacking that um, bravery to raise my hand or to volunteer for something where I might fail in front of people whose opinions care I care about. I think it's because I wasn't born with any one particular exceptional skill or talent. I had to learn to work really hard to compensate for that because my goals have always been really, really big. That just came naturally. I wanted to do something that really matters with my life but I wasn't particularly exceptional. And so I, I learned step-by-step step of like, I would be in the AP classes in high school. I felt like I had to study twice as hard as anyone else in my class to get the same grade. But that was such a gift because I learned that I could trust myself to ask the right questions, to seek out help and mentorship when I really needed it, and that I could trust myself to figure out hard things. I had done that over and over again. So even very early in my career, when I didn't have a lot of working experience, I thought, okay, let me treat my job like school. I know how to do school. And so if you take something that um, is a natural talent of yours and you build on that line upon line, I think that's the formula for creating some confidence when you ask no, you can ask the right questions. You can work really hard. You care more about it than anyone around you. And you seek out those mentors so that you don't have to learn everything the hard way. That can be a nice formula for building that confidence, especially early in your life or early in your career. Yeah. That your story reminds me so much of myself because uh-huh. it, I feel the exact same way. Like I am not exceptional at, you know, a certain skill or a certain subject in school, I was always the one that had to study longer to get the good grade rather than just like studying for an hour and all of a sudden getting, you know, an A, like that was not me. I definitely had to put in the work. (laughs) And like, I, but I always had these dreams of, I want to be successful. I want to own my own business. I want to start X, Y, Z. And that was always something that I had. So I always knew I had to work for it because I knew it wasn't going to come just natural or easy to me. And I think that's actually a perk, like you said. Yes, I think so too. And I've heard you share on this podcast before, Natalie, that your experience in in starting with YouTube, you also had to be willing to be misunderstood for a while. You were doing something that no one around you was doing, like being a YouTuber wasn't even a term yet. And you, your peers weren't immediately receptive to that, you know? And so I think that's kind of the bravery of, you had this thing that you felt passionate about so much so that you were willing to do it even when no one yet was watching and your peers didn't understand what you were doing. But you built on that, you built the skill set and gave yourself permission to just try something that no one around you was doing. And I think that is true entrepreneurship. And I really want people out there uh, listening, whether that's maybe sketching in a notebook or writing a story or, or doing something that no one in your social circle is doing, that can be an element, even when we're not like yet at the perfectionist end of our story level of our skills. I just think you're such a great example of that. Thank you. Yeah. I agree though with like, you can build on skills. You can build by just working hard and creating good habits and I don't think you need to have like this innate talent or innate ability to do something because most people don't, you know, like, and most successful people, I would say don't either. I think so. And I think this is a real challenge for this next uh, generation of entrepreneurs or, or people who are really trying to step into their own self-identity right now. It's really hard because we just see the Instagrammed, like, falsified perfection versions or the end of someone else's story. And it can be so easy, no matter where you're at in your career. This happens to me too, where you're like, oh, she's already done that. Or isn't that so perfect? Or that book, I I just read a book recently that um, by Stephen Kotler that I love so much. It makes me mad that I didn't write it. It's so easy to compare ourselves to the end of someone else's journey. And I think I love your message of really just giving yourself permission to lean into something because you're passionate about it, because it brings you joy. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be that the journey of developing a skill in and of itself can be a reward. A hundred percent. Yeah. I hope that the listeners really understand that because it's so easy on social media to 
compare yourself. Yeah. And I always say like so many people ask me, how do I start a YouTube channel? How do I start on social media? How do I get brand deals and make money off of this? And mm-hmm. they're constantly comparing themselves to someone who has been there for years. And I'm yes. always tell them you can't compare your first piece of content to someone's hundredth. Like it's not, you can't do that. Like you, it's incomparable. It's, you're always going to be disappointed. There's always going to be someone that's <laughs> better than you, quote unquote. Like you have to kind right. of just blaze your own path as cheesy or cliche as that sounds, but then you'll figure it out. So I, I love that message. Absolutely. I think it's um, like everyone likes the idea of being a high power celebrity or CEO or exec, but they don't realize that the people who got there started off alone in their garage creating content when no one was paying attention. No one was buying it yet. No one was watching, but consistently showing up for that is how they qualified themselves to have that kind of audience today. So yeah, yeah starting small is always part of the journey. Yeah. After you worked for Amazon, you went to work with the CEO of Google, another very <laughs> large <laughs> company. Um, that's an understatement. Mm-hmm. What? How did you adjust to that? Was it kind of the same role? Was it? Were you doing something totally mm. different? Was it another like scary step? It was scary because that my role at Amazon really evolved in unexpected ways. I was hired just as this junior support member of the C-suite staff, and because of a couple of crazy things that happened, I ended up really um, owning some executive project management skills. So that's really why Google came recruiting uh, years later because of the types of projects I had done for Jeff. It really evolved from being like a junior assistant to being, you know, running some major projects, um, whether that was a product launch or writing his TED talk back when nobody had even heard of TED back then. Um, and so then I, I originally left Amazon to start a PhD at Berkeley. So I went back to plan A and I thought, great, I've got this work experience. I've learned a lot, but I do want to be a professor. I love learning and writing, et cetera. So that's what originally took me to California. I didn't know a soul. So that was a big, my first time of making a really big bet on myself of like, I'm going to leave this job that I love so much. Once Amazon was finally profitable and our stock was finally worth something, that's the moment I left. And then it was a year or two into that, um, my PhD studies that Google came recruiting. And I did think, okay, this time, once I decided to leave, which was gut-wrenching and a a long story, once I decided to leave my PhD and take a chance on this company called Google, which wasn't yet the dominant search engine that it is today, um, they had just launched Calendar the week before I joined, if you can even imagine, like a bunch of the features that are ingrained in our lives hadn't been invented yet at this stage. But I thought it would be an easier learning curve because I was like, oh, well, I know tech now. I know who the players are. I know the lingo. I know how to wrong. It was my first year there was really hard. I was um, the company similar to Amazon doubled in size the year I joined. And so a lot of the things that they had just done by instinct in the early years where this was just like a year or so after IPO, they were now trying to systematize and operationalize for the very first time. So there wasn't this playbook of here's how you get things done here. And so the first year was very much about trying to figure out how to be productive and building up relationships. And um, while it's a similar culture, there are really important things that are very different about how Google does things. Um, So my first two and a half, almost three years at Google, I worked for Marissa Meyer, who is the vice president over search products and user experience, which is a long title that just means we made really cool stuff. Our job was to get eyeballs onto the website every day. And so we just got to be creative. And I learned so much about how to tap into that mindset, how to dream really, really big. And the projects that I ran on Marissa's team, on the products team, got the attention of Eric Schmidt, Google's CEO. And when there was an opening in his office for um, that kind of executive project manager type of role, they recruited me into that. And I worked for him for the next nine and a half of the 12 years I was at Google. It was an incredible journey. I grew that role. I really kind of reinvented the role three times and ended up becoming chief of staff, which was such a privilege and so terrifying in many ways, because as you said, the stakes are really, really high. We were growing astronomically and getting something wrong, you know, could be a literally a billion dollar mistake. So that can feel a little intimidating, but also pretty thrilling also. Yeah. When you say you reinvented the role, why... Mm why and how do you reinvent that role? Because I feel like a lot of people Mm. think, you know, they might be in a position where they feel like, okay, it is time to reinvent the role or they're, you know, they're not doing what they really want to do. So how did you reinvent the role and what kind of signs 
did you have that mm-hmm. it was time to do that? I think this is such an important question. I'm glad we're digging into this because this is something that anyone can do, whether you're at the intern stage of your career or you're maybe mid-career and wanting to get that big promotion or client account for the first time, or maybe like me, you've turned your side hustle or like you turned your side hustle into your main hustle and you're the CEO of, of your startup or company. These, uh, these three tips I'm going to give apply for regardless of your seniority or career stage. The first thing that I always looked at was being very purposeful and what do I want to learn in this part of my career? What is the skill set that I want to have, the expertise I want to be known for, what types of projects do I want to be leading, what stages do I want to be standing on, what books am I writing? And when you give that roadmap to yourself, it kind of becomes this list. Once you've checked off most of those, then you can wake up and be like, all right, now it might be time to set my sights on my next challenge. So being very purposeful in what I want to learn. That also helps you raise your hand for the right projects or do something outside your comfort zone because you know that's qualifying you for your future roles that you want to have. The second category I always watch carefully in my career is, am I working for a leader that I not only like, but that I want to become like? And even if your role right now doesn't, maybe that your manager does not qualify as the person you want to become, that will help you lift your eyes up and be like, where else in this organization can I find that kind of person? Can I volunteer for a cross-functional project so I get exposed to her way of leading a team or his way of managing through crisis? And it, and if that's not available to you in your um, company, also you can seek that in your community. Or thankfully, this is one of the great silver linings of the internet. You can look for those leaders online and you can create for yourself not only mentors who are invested in your progress, but something that I call an avatar mentor. And this person doesn't even have to know you exist. <laughs> so this is a person who's exemplifying. They're on those stages you want to be on. They're, they're writing the books you want to write. They're leading the teams that you want to lead. And you can reverse engineer. How did they get started on that? What was their first role or their first book? Or, and that gives you a little bit of a playbook to emulate. The third thing I look for is disruption. Now, it doesn't mean you have to work in technology or in artificial intelligence or crypto or anything. What that means is, am I consistently up-leveling my skills? Am I on a team that rewards that kind of behavior? Am I working for um, a company that's got really aggressive growth goals that are going to force me to disrupt myself before the industry does it for us? So those are the three markers I watch to know now is the time to up level. If I'm a little bit too comfortable and I, I encourage you all now is a, we're headed towards the end of the year and we're thinking about our new year's resolutions, go in and do an, an, an audit for yourself, uh, audit your time, your influence and your resources. And if 80% of those are spent in your comfort zone, now might be the right moment for you to reinvent yourself, volunteer for that bigger project, do something that scares you, maybe do a little side hustle or ask for a promotion. But those are the three indicators for me of when I'm ready for a new challenge. I love that. I think that's such great advice and it's such invaluable advice because so many people need to hear that. And I think a lot of times people are in their comfort zone and they don't even realize that they're in their comfort zone until they take that second to reflect and realize that, okay, this is actually not what I want to be doing. This isn't progressing me. This isn't moving me forward. And I know you mentioned to reach out to people, you know, maybe ask someone a chunk of their time and talk to them. How should people reach out? So is a cold email good? Is a warm intro good? Like, let's say you don't know anyone that knows this person, but you just want to go for it and ask them if they want to talk. What's some advice for that? Because I know some people are very willing to give their time and they're willing to chat with people. But others, you know, they're busier. They don't necessarily want to sit down and talk to someone that they don't know. So what's your advice on that cold reach out or that like LinkedIn reach out or maybe not LinkedIn? <laughs> I I, let, I love that. Let's start with the hardest scenario first, which is I don't know you and nobody I know does. So my advice there, because I have had access to the inboxes of some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful people, they get a lot of emails like this. The way to stand out in the crowd, if you're making a cold request is really be very specific. Be specific about what exactly you need, why they are the only person in the world who can do it and make it easy for them to deliver. So for example, if what you need from them most is an introduction of like, hey, I saw that you got your start in public speaking by being on this stage. Would you mind introducing me to the um, organizer? That's a 15 second email. That's it. That's an easier yes than like, hey, how'd you get started in public speaking? They that would take a lot of like effort on their part to put that together. So make it really easy for them to take action on it. 
and think about, make sure um, in tech, we call it the TLDR, the too long didn't read. So start your email with a single sentence summarizing what is your ask, and then maybe give them the little bit of context and the reason why they're the only one who can do it for you. In my experience, that's the easiest way to be successful in a cold call. As you said, there are easier paths into that if you have a common colleague. I personally um, find LinkedIn to be very, very helpful in these scenarios because if you have someone in common who can vouch for you and make a warm introduction, you're much more likely to get a response. But I think it's also um, important to be have some clarity in your mind of what do I want this person to be for me? So you have mentors. That's somebody whose job is literally at your company to be your manager and to kind of coach you um, with those simple things. That person already has a responsibility and a buy-in to create opportunities for you. The next category is that avatar mentor that I mentioned before of like somebody, they don't need to know you exist, but you're going to do the homework yourself and reverse engineer their plan. And this third category is a sponsor. This is, a, and I think this is the category you're talking about right now. A sponsor is someone who can open a door that you cannot yet open for yourself. So be really clear. What am I asking for? Am I asking for a recurring relationship where you're going to guide me step-by-step step as I grow? That's a mentor. Are you giving me a path to reverse engineer, which is an avatar mentor? Or am I asking you to be a sponsor, which is I need this specific door opened, or I need you to pull a chair up to this table and be as specific as possible about that. Cause that's time bound. That's just one specific moment in time. And that's not a favor that you're going to keep coming back to and dipping into constantly. I think if you just have that clarity, you make much more educated requests. Yeah. I think that that's super, super helpful because so many people are like, I don't know how to, what to say in the email is short, better is long, better yeah. is more detail, better short is always better. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's such, such good advice. And I know that you've also worked with a ton of CEOs and very successful mm -hmm. ones I might add. What is, this is kind of a selfish question, but what are some character traits of a good CEO, of someone who is a good leader, mm -hmm. a successful leader? What have you seen by working alongside them? This is one of my favorite questions. I, it's been such a privilege, as you say, I have worked for some of the most high impact CEOs in the world and I've seen the best practices. And over the last year, well, like three and a half years, I left Google three and a half years ago. And now I do consulting for CEOs literally on five different continents. So I have different growth stages, different industries. It has become crystal clear to me what differentiates the good ones from the exceptional. And my list might surprise your listeners a little bit. My list starts with humility. Now, when you think of the people that I've worked for, humility probably isn't the first word that you think of when you just see their external persona because they look so polished and so perfect and so primed. Every word is chosen so carefully. I have seen the behind the scenes of how they got there, how hard they work. And the way they get to that level of expertise is by surrounding themselves with people who challenge them consistently. They've surrounded themselves with people who poke holes in all their favorite ideas, who challenge them to think differently and to be better today than they were yesterday. And that takes a lot of humility, especially with success, because you can start to think like, oh, all my jokes are funny and all my ideas are good. But the really exceptional CEOs are those who are humble enough, not only to tolerate that, but demand that from the people around them in their personal life from the shareholders, like their, their life partner, their friends, and, and their colleagues at work. So that's quality number one that immediately comes to mind. The second is really insatiable curiosity. I cannot tell you, if you're sitting at a table with these CEOs, they are going to ask like 10 times more questions than the normal human would. They love getting into it and exploring it, especially when they're talking to somebody who has a different expertise or opinion that they do. They love digging deeper, deeper, deeper into having a, a richer understanding of an issue. And they also seek that out. They aren't just within their bubble of people who went to the same university or have the same expertise or at the same level. They seek out those who have diversity of thought, experience, values, culture, worship. And uh, that really informs their decision-making and helps them have that kind of global perspective that lets them invent the future. So those are the first two things that I think it sounds simple, but to do it at their level with the purposefulness in which they do, that is what makes them really, truly exceptional. And that the great thing is, this is the whole reason I wrote my book. The great thing is, is these best practices of these seemingly super performers are translatable for us normal people. That's what I've really tried to do in the book is show you like, this is accessible to you also. You too can, can adopt these best practices.
Mm -hmm. No, I think that that's great. And it's something that, like you said, you don't think of when you think of a CEO, you know, it's like humility is not the first thing you think of Mm -mm. when you think of Jeff Bezos. Like, I mean, you know, because you see see him on the cover of magazines and you see, you know, oh my God, he's like the richest person and all of this, you know, (laughs) that's what you see when you think of him. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really cool that you actually get the behind the scenes. And also, I think, like you said, I meant you mentioned it earlier, but people don't just show up and become successful immediately. Like there's so much work that goes behind it and you have to do it when no one else agrees with you, when no one else believes in you, when no one else knows what you're doing. Like those are the people that become successful. And I think a lot of times it's easy to say, oh, well, it's so easy for so-and-so to be successful Mm -hmm. because like they had money or they had, um, Mm -hmm. they're, they're rich or they're whatever it is that they are, but you don't know them before that, you know, like you don't know their background and that's what they right. were doing before they became this super successful CEO. So I think that that's so important to recognize too. It's so important to remember because yes, I mean, Jeff does have this very polished persona and he looks super cool. I knew the nerd 1.0 version of Jeff when he was just figuring it out. We made so many mistakes. We, it was not glamorous. We, we lost so much money, but like we made investments or took risks that didn't pay off, but that's how he qualified himself to be the gold standard of e-commerce that he became. He just showed up every day and did the really hard work. And I also don't want this to sound like hero worship. He is not a perfect person. Amazon is not a perfect company. All of these people, I know their best practices as well as I know their flaws and their faults. And that's also an important part to remember. They're not perfect. They make mistakes. They they are dealing with their egos or disappointments and it's still they still care when they fail. So it is important to realize that they aren't just this one dimensional polished <laughs> perfection that comes out on the magazine covers that we see. Right. And I don't, I mean, I don't think anyone is, you know, like I, social media makes it seem like everyone is, mm-hmm. but people are not like that. Like people are multifaceted. They mm-hmm. have a lot of disappointments and failures under their belt and that they're not going to show. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone's going to put on the cover of a magazine, like biggest failure of the year, like, <laughs> you know, like that just won't happen. So I think that's important to, to realize that too. And I know also, yes, you've worked with CEOs, but also people who, you know, just are wanting to reach their goals. They might not want to be head of a company. They might not yeah. want to, you know, start their own business, but what is, are some tips that you've seen along the way of people just to reach their goals in their career and their personal life, whatever it might be. I think that it's, there's probably some common practices that you see for people to, to hit those. And I think once they do reach those goals, they become more confident because, you know, they're keeping promises to themselves. They're, they're doing something that they said that they would. So what's, what's some of your key tips for reaching your goals? Natalie, I think this is such an important thing. And I think so many of us are craving this kind of reset button right now. I, just wrote an article for Harvard Business Review where I kind of outline how do you discover what you want in your career in this next stage. And it comes down to the three Ps. It's purpose, people, and passion. And I, this is one of the things that I love seeing in, the, in this stage of great resignation that we've got, and especially this next generation of leaders, is they're not just going to be there to punch a clock or do the commute or do whatever to-do list their manager gives them. They want purpose behind it. They want their, the way they spent their time today to matter, the larger impact of the company or community that they're in to matter. And they're being much more purposeful. I love that. My generation of leaders were probably the first to start to be like, I want to make the world a better place. That's such a cliche now, but back then that was revolutionary thinking because my parents' generation worked at the same place for 50 years and just did what they were told. That's not what we're doing anymore. So I would start with your purpose. So this sounds simple, but I hope you'll sit down and write it and you realize this is a deep thought exercise. Try and write your individual mission statement. And this is, who am I here to serve? What do I want to give them? And why does that matter to me? How how am I going to deliver that to them? If you write a mission statement for yourself, that makes sure that you're in the driver's seat and you can recognize opportunities to serve that even in their emphases, when it's just a grain of an idea or an opportunity, you're going to be like, oh, that's for me. The second thing is people. I say this to all of my consulting clients right now who are very, very successful CEOs. Whenever they have a challenge, it comes down to, I think, the people. Because you can have the most sophisticated business plan and you can have this uh, go-to-market strategy and you know the what and the how we're going to deliver it. But if you don't have the who right, if you don't have clarity on who am I serving, And how do I want to show up for them? And who do I need to have on my team or at my side to make this possible? 
the rest doesn't matter. So this is a great time for us at the end of the year to be auditing that. Are the people that I spend the most time with reflective of the type of person I want to be in this world? And social media influencers are definitely included in that audit. When you look at their content, does it inspire you to be your best self or do you shrink and think, oh, and, and feel lesser of yourself? Are they someone who inspires you and empowers you? And then seek that out in your workplace, in your friends, in your family and acquaintances, because that um, we've all heard the saying that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So let's be very, very purposeful about who those people are. And then the th third P is about those passions. What really lights you up? The, the best way to think about what you're passionate about is think about a day when you worked really, really hard but you ended the day full of energy and enthusiasm, even when the end goal was still super far away. When those things are true, you've worked insanely hard, you should be drained of energy, but you are just ending the day really dedicated, even when that finish line is super far away, you are passion aligned. And so seeking that out in your community and your work and your friends and family is a big indicator um, that you're in the right place. I love that. I'm a, I want to write that down and you know, do this exercise myself because that's something that I feel like it's easy to go through the motions of every day. You know, yes. you're doing the same thing. Even if you originally, maybe it was your passion at first, once it's been a while, I think ah. that you should always kind of check yourself, like check, like, is this really what you want to mm -hmm. do? Like, is this really what you're passionate about? So I think that anyone can benefit from that exercise. And it's always important to make sure that you are actually doing what you're passionate about and not doing something, just going through the motions. And then five years later, you realize, I hate this. <laughs> yes. And it's so count, it's might seem counterintuitive, but that's when you're primed for burnout. When you don't have those meaningful challenges, you would think the challenge, which is pushing you and doing the extra hours and, and it is kind of scary is when you burn out. That is in my experience, not true. It's when you're being underutilized, when you're not learning something new that primes you for burnout. And I think that's why the pandemic has been so hard for so many people. Cause we all kind of put our heads in the sand and we're like, I'm just going to sit here in my safety zone until it's safe to come out again. And we got so depressed and anxious and afraid. And I think this is our best path out of that. And I believe in it so much that I've actually created a free download on my website to coach people through creating your mission, your vision, and your value statements and putting yourself back in the driver's seat, especially if you're feeling that right now. If you're feeling like burnt out or underutilized and uninspired, this is how you can um, take control again. Yeah, I love it. And I know we've talked about success a lot on the podcast. We've talked about, you know, career success, the successful people you've worked with, your own success. What defines success for you though? Because I think it looks different for everyone. And, you know, we can use this blanket word success, but it means something different to everyone. So what does that mean to you? And that's kind of a loaded question. So <laughs> it is, I mean, <laughs> how do I want to define my life? So I actually have been thinking about this a lot because so many of my consulting clients have had to hit the reset button and be very purposeful in, in how they're spending their time and their resources, not only to keep their companies afloat, but to think about their larger purpose and impact. And I call this um, creating your living legacy. And like your question, that feels very large and grandiose and something that you do at the end of your life. But if we think about, I think success for me is living each day that I showed up where I was value aligned and I was using my unique experience, nature, DNA to serve the community that matters to me the most, that is successful. And like you said, that definition will probably change over time. That definition was different for 20-year-old Anne who started Amazon not knowing what she was doing there. And it's different now in this stage, um, 20 years later in my career, where I am living a lot more purposely as the CEO of my own company. For me, that's successful. When you're in alignment and you're serving the world something that you are passionate about and value aligned, you will feel successful. It does not, let me tell you right now, I know some, I've worked with the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world and those titles and those salaries do not correlate with happiness. So don't get confused with your title or your bonus or your promotion or being able to go home for Christmas and like brag to your parents about what job you have. That is, does not correlate with happiness. Happiness comes from fulfilling your unique purpose, being passion aligned and serving the community that matters to you the most. Yeah, That's it. I love that. I mean, I can, I even for a few years ago, my goals were all like numbers driven, you know, it was like hitting this number of yeah. followers or subscribers or this much money I want to make this year. I want to get a brand deal for this much, or I want to have, you know, it was all like numbers driven. Yeah. And while I still have like numbers driven goals, I think that those are great to have, but 
that was it. Like that was, those were the only goals I had. And every time I hit them, I was like, okay, well, that's not good enough. I need more. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't bring happiness. Sure. Like it's great to hit them, but I think that it's important to, to have those with other ones too. And those not, don't highlight those as the most important because Mm -hmm. that's like you said, it's not going to bring you happiness. You are so wise. And I think you've just highlighted something that's really, really important, which is it can feel discouraging when you're seeking out a goal, especially if it's a, I I love a numbers, like specific goal. I do. I love it. But you've highlighted the missing element is what part of this can I control? For example, I just wrote my first book. I cannot control if it's a New York times bestseller, but I could control showing up every day and writing my pages. I could control being humble enough to get those hard edits from my editor. I could control coming and talking about it and putting myself out there for judgment or literal Amazon reviews from strangers who don't know me that I could control and how it's received is none of my business. Honestly, I am here to serve and share what I've learned and hope that inspires someone else. So I think that's the differentiator. I'm going to definitely push myself insanely hard, but I'm also going to realize that what I want from that process is being better today than I was yesterday. And that's the most important metric. No, I love that so much. But thank you so much, Anne, for coming on my podcast. This was one of my favorite episodes. Like I really don't say that that often. And this was one of mine that I really, really loved. I think it's because I just resonated a lot with everything they get to say. And it's very like relevant with what I'm going through right now, just with Rella and with, you know, my career and all of that stuff. So I love Natalie. That means a lot to me. And I do think, I think we are very much, you're my kind of girl. Like I think we're very aligned in what we're trying to deliver to the world. And I, I love how you show up and how you've inspired so many people. Jeff Bezos always says that entrepreneurs have to be willing to be misunderstood for a really long time. And I think you're a great example of that. You, you forged your own path and that's really inspiring to everyone. I think that's why you're getting the traction that you are. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, Yeah, of course. So where can they find you? Where can they find your book? I am so excited to read it. I told Anne that I was like, I am so excited to read this book because I know I'm, this conversation was so valuable. So I know that the book is going to provide me with a lot of value. So oh. where can everyone shop it? Thank you. Well, it is on Amazon, which is a great full circle moment for me. But it's really anywhere you like to buy books. Um, and so I actually have easy links on the book's website, which is betonyourselfbook.com. There's all the links to all the places that you like shop. Also, it's available on audio, which I recorded myself. Uh, and it's full of these crazy stories from the foundation of the internet. But most important to me, it's, it's actionable. At the end of each chapter, I give you challenges of what you can do today to translate these best practices into your life right now. And so, yeah, the book's website is a great place to be. It also has links to all my socials. I'm uh, at Ann Hyatt on Instagram and I'm Ann R. Hyatt on Twitter and Ann Hyatt on um, LinkedIn. So I look forward to continuing the conversation and connecting with all your listeners and, and seeing what questions they've got for me as well. Awesome. Well, everything will be in the show notes, but thank you so much, Ann, for coming on my podcast. Really fun. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovan Rumpf and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here. And vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.